scripture reading this morning will be from Hebrews 10, verse 36, and Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. church. All right, all right. I'm going to need your help this morning as we get started. I need you to go with me for a minute and just think about a time that maybe you've experienced where you've been confronted with a major decision that you have to make. A decision that only you can make. One that's not um, uh, something you can pawn off to somebody else, a friend or a spouse. It's not a decision that you can ignore week after week and just hope that it goes away. It's a decision that has a deadline kind of bearing down on you. The pressure's kind of there, and you've got to make a decision. Perhaps it's uh, choosing to go to college or go to work. Maybe when you get to college, it's choosing your major. I know when I hit about junior year, they told me undecided was not a degree I could get, so I had to like kind of decide something that I was going to do so I asked them what's the quickest way out of here and they told me and um, I went that route maybe you've had a decision where you thought am I supposed to move to a different city or town or am I supposed to stay should I get this new job or should I stay with my old job do I need to give up maybe a bad habit or a bad practice or do I need to invest in some good ones maybe um, there's been some pressure building on you where you've got to decide and make this decision. You know, the process usually involves things like gathering as much information as possible. Well, usually you find out when the deadline is, right? When you got to make the decision, you try to gather as much information as you can. You kind of dig deep into thinking about it. Maybe you ask some people for help. And finally, you've got to emerge with a decision. And man, if this decision is big, there are times that even after you've done all the work of thinking and digging deep and wondering about it, you emerge with an answer, there can still be a little sense of uncertainty, like, was it the right answer? Should I have gone here or there? Should I have stayed or should I have went for this job? Should I? There can be some uncertainty. And that uncertainty can vanish the moment you connect with someone else who has walked your same path and has made a similar decision that you've made. You ever done that with somebody? I know for me, my first experience with college, I had decided for about the last three or four months of school that I was going to stay in my hometown and go to the local college with a bunch of friends. And all throughout the spring and into the summer, it was gnawing at me that it wasn't right. And I kept thinking about going to Ohio University. At that time, Matt and Monica had a really good campus ministry going. And it was just gnawing at me, and I knew I had to make that decision, and I finally emerged from making that decision to decide to change, and the moment I connected with a few other people that told me, yeah, I've, I've decided to go to this school too because they've got a good campus ministry going, and I'd like to be a part of that, the moment I experienced that with somebody else, boy, it was solidified. A bond was formed. A connection is made. And all of a sudden, your decision feels a little bit safer. It feels right. You don't feel so alone. You feel part 
of something bigger. Well, we're sort of at that point in our study of the book of Hebrews. Up until this point, for about nine and a half chapters, the writer of the book of Hebrews has been saying to you, week after week, moment after moment, Jesus is greater than anything you could ever turn to for peace, for joy, for purpose, for security. When you're looking for hope and you're finally searching for love, all of the things that you are running to right now for those things, and every one of you are running to something for those things, Jesus is greater. And in the same moment, as we looked at last week, we've been respectfully warned about missing him. The Bible is very clear about missing out on Jesus Christ. That you don't just miss a religion, you don't just miss a belief, you miss what he calls the abundant life. And so now what's before every one of us is this decision. We've got to do the work, we've got to gather the information about Jesus. We've got to invest in that information and think about it deeply. We've got to dig deep. And we'd have to emerge with a decision. Is Jesus Christ the Son of God? Did He live perfectly? Did He substitutionarily die in your place for you? Was He raised back to a new life? A resurrected life? And did He inaugurate the new world that is to come with His resurrection as He defeated death? Did He do those things? Or is Jesus Christ just an enigma? A mystery? and a legend but not God you know every person in this room has to decide and here's the deal when you decide you emerge and make that decision you'll find that there are others who have gathered the same information before you who have considered the same details who have done the work invested the time and emerged with what the Bible calls faith that's exactly what chapter 11 is all about that there is as chapter 12 verse 2 says a or chapter 12 verse 1 a great cloud of witnesses a dense group of people not in their brains but in the amount of people there are group of people who are testifying to you about something they're not witnesses watching you it's not that they're up in heaven on a perch watching down to see what you're doing this great cloud of witnesses is a great group of people who are testifying historically to you that you can trust what God reveals to you. And the ultimate revelation of God is Jesus Christ. You can trust Him. Now let me tell you, when it comes to Jesus, there are only two groups in the world. That as you laid, as Jesus is laid before you, and you think about Him, you can only emerge from thinking about him one of two ways. That's what chapter 10, verse 39 is all about. When we are getting this warning from the writer, and he says at the end of this warning, don't miss Jesus. He says, we are not of those who draw back cowardly and reject Jesus. We're not of those, but we are of those. We belong to those who emerge from this thought. That's what they call faith. That's who we belong to. You see, the deciding factor that the world is divided upon is what do you think about Jesus? Remember that old hymn? What will you do with Jesus, my friend? Remember the next line? Neutral 
you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking your friend, what will he do with me? But I want to tell this crowd something that's not just that the world is separated by what you think about Jesus. We see also the church differentiated about what you think about Jesus. Peter said it this way, it is high time for judgment to come to the house of God. Revelation 14 tells us that John was given the measuring rod and he was told, don't measure the courts of the temple. Go right to the temple and measure the people of God. You see, what you think about Jesus is not just what separates the church and the world, but in fact, inside of what we call the visible church, God will also ask, do you really have faith in Jesus Christ? Do you really trust Him? Do you remember Jesus' warning in Matthew chapter 7? Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. And they'll say to me, Lord, have we not done all these things in your name? And he'll say this one line that differentiates him. I never knew you. We weren't connected. You might have done the rituals. You might have performed the ordinances. You might have taken of the sacraments. But I never knew you. So this concept of faith in Jesus Christ doesn't just separate church from world. It separates believers from religious. So what I want to do this morning quickly is understand the DNA of this group, this great cloud of witnesses that have lived by faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is a human illustration of people who have lived by faith in what God has revealed to them and obeyed Him. That's what it is. And so I want to show you the DNA of this group for two reasons. One, if you're not a part of this group, I want to invite you into this group. I want to invite you into this cloud of people, this great group of people who have looked at what God has revealed and says, I believe that, and I'll stake my life on it, and I'll follow it to the end. And I also want to show you the DNA, DNA of this group of faith for those that might think, maybe I do have faith, but maybe I don't. Maybe I've said I've always had faith, but what does my life actually reveal about my faith? And see if, as you lay the DNA of this group of faith on top of your life, do you really have faith? Let's start with this first point. Let's get a clarity on faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 is the place where the Bible actually defines what faith is. Faith is the assurance of the things hoped for, the conviction of things we have not yet seen. You see, we use the word faith frequently in Christian circles, all the time. We use it everywhere, and that's good, that's rightly so. We use it to encourage people when we say, have faith. We use it to challenge people when we say, where is your faith? We use it to check on people, hey, how's your faith? We use it to establish people. You need to grow in your faith. And we use it even to inspire people, right? Like things like faith will lead you home. But we have to be incredibly careful, especially with the young minds that are with us today. Because one of the most dangerous things we can ever do as believers in Jesus Christ is assume the next generation believes what we believe, understands what we believe. There was a study done by a man. Um, he's a professor. He was at Duke University. I think he's moved on since then in their seminary. 
he studied the, the Mennonite religion. I think I've shared this story with you before. He studied the Mennonites, and he basically wanted to understand generationally how the Mennonite faith is passed on. And what he found out was that there was this group of people that became not just distant from the Mennonite faith, but embittered towards it, angry towards it. He wanted to understand why. And he began to do research and interview and study, and he came away with this conclusion that there was a generation of people that understood, believed, and had conviction about their faith. And they made the assumption that the generation after them by osmosis would get what they were doing. So they didn't explicitly say, here's what faith means, here's what faith is. They just assumed that the next generation would get it, and here's what happened. It wasn't the second generation that defected. See, that generation had enough connection with their parents, enough social obligation, enough awareness that they kept maintaining the Mennonite faith, but they didn't buy into it. And that third generation, it went from a gospel that was known to a gospel that was assumed to a gospel that was despised. A gospel that is despised. We have to be careful that faith, the phrase faith, does not become a catchphrase of Christianity. You know what a catchphrase is? It's something that culturally we say, but we don't always know where it comes from. For, for instance, uh, catch-22, what does that mean, right? Or uh, stuck between a rock and a hard place. Or how about this is my favorite one in my family. What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> my kids say that. They've never seen the show. I say it. I've never seen the show. I've never seen the show. I just know Gary Coleman, right? I've seen it on YouTube when he has that, the, that little face. It's super cute. Do you understand what I mean by catchphrase? Is when I say, do you have faith? Can you, in a few sentences, tell somebody else, this is what it means to have faith? Do you have clarity on that? Well, Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us this. Faith is the assurance of what you hope for. It's the conviction of what you do not now see. You see, it's, what it tells us is this, that faith begins... Faith is born when there is a desire for something better. Faith is rooted deeply in hope. You won't actually have faith if there's not a stirring inside of you for something better. For where you are now is not where you want to be and there's something better in front of you. Faith is rooted in the basis of hope. That you've got to want something better. Let me tell you, Christian, especially in our culture, the greatest enemy for us having faith. The greatest killer of faith is not intellectual arguments for atheism. That is not the greatest killer of faith. The greatest challenge to faith is contentment, comfortability, indulgence. When you are comfortable and have everything you want, everything you think you need, when there's nothing that you want outside of yourself, you have no reason for faith. The arguments for atheism, do not, they do not compare to the challenge they provide to faith as contentment. Faith begins with a desire for something better. Secondly, faith moves to, a, to an awareness of the someone you can trust. We are, at our very base root, trust-based beings. We exist on trust. You go to work, and you work 40 hours, and you trust that that employer at the end of those 40 hours is going to give you a paycheck. That's a trust-based relationship. We exist in trust. You can't escape trust. And most often, who we trust is ourself. And faith then, after it desires for something better, moves to an awareness that there's somebody else that I can trust. 
And then faith ultimately involves assurance that obedience to that one that you now trust will bring you that better thing you want. That's what faith is. A desire for something better, an awareness that there's somebody you can trust, and the assurance that obedience to that one you now trust will bring you to that better thing. Just look in your life. Lay that onto something else. I guarantee you'll see that you have faith like in the college you're going to. I want something better, a job. I trust that this college can help me get there, and therefore I'm going to obey what this college has laid out. Do you see how that works? Exactly how it works with Jesus Christ. Faith is a combination of confidence and conviction that something better can come, and when I obey the one I believe in, that something better will come. What's the advantage of this faith? Number two, there's two really quick things that give us an advantage to this faith, verses two and three. First of all, he says, those who are of old by their faith have received commendation commendation that phrase those of old is the same word that we get for the word elders so you now have permission by the preacher to call our elders those guys who are old okay (laughs) just kidding but it is the exact same word what it means is our forefathers those that have gone before us those that have laid the path that we now follow because they've done it well our presbyters that's what it means and they when they lived by faith which was God revealed to them something and they obeyed it because they believed in God. They received what he calls commendation, which is just what Jesus promised to us at the end of our life when he said, you will hear me say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's ours to come as we walk by faith. So they gained a commendation and we will gain that at the end of our life. But we also gain presently in verse three, he says, we gain understanding. By faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. You see, faith cuts to the chase of reality. Science has been studying and people have been studying the universe for thousands of years. Brilliant people have been looking at it. And what faith allows us to do is cut to the chase of reality. It gives us understanding. That means clarity about reality about two things. Number one, the universe. He uses specifically the word universe here on purpose. It's not the word world. It's not the word earth. He's not saying by faith we understand that the earth was created or the world was created. He uses the word universe to mean everything in aggregate. All things created. This means that we realize when we live by faith in Jesus Christ that all things were made with purpose made with intent, that they have design in them, that you have a way that you are supposed to live. This world has a way that it's supposed to operate, and you and I have an understanding that the universe and everything in it was created by the Word of God, made by God's power to work in a certain way. That's what faith tells us. And it tells us that there is something deeper beyond what we see. You see the end of verse 3? That the things were made so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That there is greater meaning and greater significance in this life than just what you see with your eyes. And our minds and our hearts and our worlds testify to this truth. That there's something greater in this world than just what we see. So the advantage of faith is that we will receive a commendation someday in the future and we will now have understanding. The rest of chapter 11 is going to give you 
the action of faith is what I call it. It's, it's like a hall of fame or a parade of those who have lived by faith. And it, it's, a, it's story after story of those from the Old Testament who have lived by faith. Let me give you four really simple pr- uh, principles about faith that you can kind of take with you and think about about how you live and lay these on your life to see if you live by faith. You see, we see, first of all, that faith, by faith, these people anticipated life. Faith caused them to move towards an anticipated future outcome. You see, faith in its essence breeds a sense of optimism. It breeds a sense of hope for the future. And these people who live by faith anticipated a better future and lived towards it. In in verses 8 through 10, we see Abraham who left his inheritance, his city, to go find a city that did not yet exist, but a city that would be built on the foundation of the principles of God. That's what he did. He anticipated a city that did not yet exist, and he followed God. Secondly, faith doesn't just anticipate, faith acts. By its very nature, faith is active. It's not passive. Faith is not just intellectual. Faith does not just exist in the mind. Faith moves. Faith is doing something now in light of what you believe about the future. So what you believe about what's going to come to pass in the future, faith demands that we move now. Faith anticipates, faith acts, faith evaluates. Faith does not just move and act blindly. It doesn't just impulsively do anything. Faith actually weighs possibilities. It considers all the options. In verses 24 and 25, there's this great story that reminds us about Moses where he says this, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Do you see by faith what Moses was doing? He evaluated, should I stay here in this this palace, being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, enjoying the luxury of life, or should I go bear the reproach of my people, God's people, and be with them. His faith caused him to pause and evaluate. And there's one evaluation that was incredibly clear. That living today in light of the future is how we gain both today and tomorrow. That's what Moses said. By faith he looked at it and said, I see a future. God has promised his people something. And I would rather bear the reproach today, give up the advantage of today, and bear the reproach today by faith with God's people than to maintain the comfort and indulgence of today. You see, this flies in direct contrast with the narrative of our culture today. Did any of you uh, hear about or see the Pepsi commercial that was put out um, and was retracted within a few days? It was about a two-minute video, and some of you maybe younger people have seen that. It um, has... One of the Jenner people, I I think it's Kendall Jenner, is in it. And it starts out with this song. And let me tell you the first four lines of this song. Young people, listen to these first four lines, okay? Here's what it says. My heart won't skip a beat. I'll never look before I leap. Just enjoy the ride. I don't need a reason why. Live for now. That's our culture's narrative. Would you agree? Don't look before you leap. Ah, oh, just enjoy the ride. It doesn't, I don't even need a reason why. It just common sense says it doesn't make sense, right? 
but it touches on something that feels good in us. And let me tell you what it touches on, and you might not like it. Autonomy. Self-governance. What you've been sold is this bill that says, if you rule yourself, you will have joy. You will have life. You will have pleasure. If you run your own life, that's where you find freedom. And that's not a new argument. Did you know that? Pepsi stole it from Satan. <laughs> Did you know that? Don't tell Pepsi. Some of you work for Pepsi. Sorry. Okay. They stole it from Satan, though. Satan came to Eve and said, God has told you to obey his command because he doesn't want you to run your own life. It's old. And yet it's woven itself back into our culture. And we believe it as a formational value of our society. And faith stands in direct contrast to that. That if you have faith, you pause and you evaluate what matters most. Lastly, faith perseveres. Faith does not give up regardless of present outcome, regardless of circumstances that are difficult. Faith does not give up. Faith perseveres. Faith sticks with it because faith has a conviction. Not a hope, not a wish, like we use the word hope, but a conviction of what will come to pass in the future. Therefore, faith does not give up. There's this great part at the end of chapter 11. Let me read this to you. You should look at this. Because the stories that we see in Hebrews chapter 11 are, these people did this, and these people did this, and there's all these great stories of, in Hebrews chapter 11. Look down at verse 32. It says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah or David and Samuel, the prophets. Look what these guys did by faith. They conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. The chapter doesn't end there. Read the rest of this chapter. Here's an unknown group of people. It says this. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. By faith, they belong in this hall. And look what he says. I love how the Hebrew writer says this. Of whom the world was not worthy. Faith looks for more than personal satisfaction. Faith longs for the purpose of God to be finally fulfilled. That's what it means to live by faith. Now ask yourself, do I live by faith? Or is this a game? Am I just playing? Let me finish with the outcome because our time has passed. It's really simple in verse 6. By fa without faith, it is impossible to please Him. We please God. He's satisfied. Now, what I want you to do is pause for a moment. Those of you that maybe are Christians or not Christians, maybe you've been Christians a long time. What does it take to please God? 
You know what it means to please somebody where they're finally satisfied or happy with you? Have you ever been in a relationship with a boss or um, you know, somebody else in your life that you feel like you can never please, never satisfy? It's endlessly frustrating, right? And the number of people that I experience in my ministry that look at God as though he is an unpleasable being, it's overwhelming. They exist and relate to God as if it's some abusive relationship that he's never happy with them. And if they do A, he said B. And if they do B, he said A. And they're always worried that he's never satisfied, never happy, never pleased with me. And the Hebrew writer says, by faith. Without faith, it's impossible, which means by faith you please him. We please God by drawing near to him, by knowing he exists, and by trusting that he rewards It's the reality of Jesus Christ that brings these things alive. And when you see who Jesus is, what he has done for you, and why that changes your life, by faith, you will move towards the future that he has promised. That's what it means to be part of faith. So if you're not a Christian, I want you to consider being a Christian by faith. Hearing and believing, repenting of sin, confessing, coming into the waters of baptism, to say by faith I want to be one with Jesus and if you are a Christian I press on you with the challenge of do you really have faith two things you got to do number one evaluate who you trust if you don't know who you trust just look at your obedience who do you obey that's who you trust look at your life it'll tell you who you trust number two I want you to determine that it's time to please God by my acts of faith by my obedience of faith when you do that, you'll have the satisfaction of knowing that you're right with God, longing for what he's bringing in the future. Let's stand and sing. If you need help, you can come.